This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. Geopolitics is back as a force that is moving markets. It never seems to be too far away from our thinking these days. Quantitative measures of geopolitical risk are, of course, part of our indicator offering now via our partnership with GeoQuant. I had GeoQuant CEO and founder Mark Rosenberg on the podcast a couple of months ago, if you'd like to hear more about that. And it's a rare opportunity that we have to speak to someone who is truly an expert in some of the things that are making the headlines this week. I am speaking of Elliot Hentoff, who works for State Street Global Advisors. He is the head of policy research and is the company's main geopolitical strategist. Elliot's background could not be better placed to discuss the news of the day. He has previously worked at Standard & Poor's in their sovereign ratings group, covering Central, Eastern, and Mediterranean Europe. Before that, he was at the UN in New York advising on political and economic issues in the Middle East and Europe. Elliot has a wide range of expertise, but really specializing in the Gulf states, Iran, Turkey, and a focus on geopolitics and international relations. I've worked with him for many a year and could not be luckier to be able to speak to him today and to get his views. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. This is a difficult topic to start with, but I think we have to begin with the war that is now broken out or is potentially about to break out in the Middle East. I'm, I'm thinking back to a meeting you and I were in a little bit ago where we both kind of give our thoughts on the markets in this meeting, but this was right in the wake of, I guess you, you can really only call them atrocities, um, what, what happened in Israel. And you said a lot of things that I thought were quite important in keeping in mind about how we extrapolate events like this into markets. And you've also noted elsewhere that you know, past confrontations like this or past outbreaks of hostilities have not really had market impact. And, and noting that other than maybe in the oil markets, this particular reaction has been quite tepid. Is it different this time? And I'm thinking particularly against a broader backdrop where there do seem to be an alignment of interests against democracies and the traditional Western values, I guess. What, what are your thoughts on that as a, as a starting point? Thanks, Tim. I, I think before we delve into the impact of the war and how it translates, I do think it's worthwhile taking a step back and briefly thinking about theory you know what why do why are we paying increased attention to geopolitics how do geopolitics or the news flow how does it impact asset prices and markets and i think the, the there's a there's a variety of channels that happens the easiest one that's understood is the sentiment or confidence channel so that's channel number one you know you see bad news you're worried things could get bad investors it affects their risk appetites uh, as a result. But that's the simplistic one. It's the three other channels, which I think are less clearly understood, but actually do matter. And thinking those through takes a while. One is trade, how are future trade relations affected as a result of events? The second one is capital, how are future flows of capital, sometimes even capital stocks, if you think about the sanctions on Russia, affected as a result. And that obviously can drive capital inflows, outflows, and 
change risk and return considerations. And the final one is the macroeconomic one, where you know, does it change a country or a region's growth prospects or growth inflation dynamics? And does that have knock-on effects on the government's uh, balance sheet and, so to speak, the cost of debt and the cost of capital in, in that market? So, I mean, that's theory, but I, mm. I think it's important to put that out before we then dive into the, the effects of the war. So in, in practice, the simple effect here that people link between the Middle East is, okay, none of these economies that are affected, Israel side, which is a relatively small economy, none of the other ones are incredibly central to global trade. So that doesn't matter. You know, We're not talking about the wealthy Gulf countries here. So this is not a big capital story either. So neither the macroeconomic, the capital side is important, but the trade channel with regards to energy is the one that most investors look at. And again, the shorthand has been, okay, let's see what's happened in the past, which is, I think, very dangerous because the data sets are never very deep and long. You're looking at idiosyncratic events and trying to make a judgment from three or four precedents to today. Uh, any other short conclusion from markets has been nothing to see here. We shouldn't get worried. This is an Israel-Palestine story, hmm. very bloody, very hard to watch from a humanitarian perspective, but at the end of the day, not that market relevant. I would beg to differ this time. We can start from a few ways. One is that the immediate risk is low. I agree with that because there's no immediate transmission to an oil producer or disruption that would come from that. The problem is that that initial assessment is dependent on the outcome of the war. So there's a variety of scenarios where the Israelis end up in a situation that does lead to regional escalation and to the involvement of Iran. That's not a foretold story, but the, the odds of that happening are higher today than they were before the war started. And therefore, that should find its expression somewhere in markets. The second spillover risk is that it could destabilize regimes that are not macroeconomically significant, but could have geopolitical knock-on effects. So there's a variety of you know, further instability in North Africa as a result of the war in Gaza. That obviously has knock-on effects indirectly to energy production, but also directly to uh, the, the politics of Europe and responses there. And indirectly also with regards to the financial economic involvement of some of the Gulf countries. So there are spillover risks, basically both with regards to Iran and to other countries. There are potential trajectories where this does become a regional story. It doesn't mean it has to, but Again, the odds are of that happening are much higher today than they were before the war started. The final point, and then we'll turn it over because it's it is really you you spoke about this with we're living in a world where there's geopolitical fragmentation across the globe, and th so anything that happens today has to be viewed through that perspective. And so, almost my question to you, I'll throw it back and make it simple. Mm. Do you think that the war between a close U.S. ally and a proxy allied with the adversarial bloc, call it Russia, Iran, and others, do you not think there is a linkage and implications for other confrontations around the globe? Absolutely, there is, insofar as 
we're in the midst of a political dynamic in the US where you effectively don't have a legislative body. When it comes to the support the US has shown, and, and they have shown, as always, that they are allied with Israel, there is now, though, the thought that you're tying the potential military support for Israel into a package of support, including Ukraine and Taiwan, which, at least when it comes to Ukraine, is still the majority supported initiative within the US. But there does seem to be potentially more debate around that and potentially people within Congress who disagree with that. And the worry I have is when it comes to the West's, let's let's just call it the West's ability to aid on one side of this conflict is that gets fragmented by what has happened over the last couple of weeks. And perhaps was almost maybe not the plan going in, you know, as, as a consequence of Hamas attacking Israel, but certainly worked out conveniently for these countries that are really trying, I think, to align themselves against what we typically think of as the West. And I think that makes, you know, translating that to a market view that makes, as you've mentioned, the energy market, all that more fraught. I think it, it raises the risk premium within markets to a degree that is, that is very different because we live, and I think it's quite poignant what you pointed out. We, this is a very different time between previous episodes between Israel and Palestine. Most of the time that happened, we were still in that unusual period, I suppose, of you know, post-Cold War politics. Largely, you were still earning the peace dividend of that. This is very, very different. And we've seen it become very different over the last six or seven years in particular, but especially since the Ukraine war broke out. So the feedback loops between the two, I don't think can be ignored. Agreed. And so let's break it down into two things, one on energy narrowly, and then on risk premium more broadly. On energy, independent of the war, we've had a very profound shift on the supply side makeup of oil. In simple terms, let's speak as economists, the elasticity of supply has declined. It's less elastic or more inelastic than it's been in the past. Why? That has to do with the maturity of U.S. shale fields. It has to do with the cost of capital of expanding U.S. production. It has to do with the changing risk return expectations in a decarbonizing world around fossil fuel development in U.S. shale. And again, I focus on U.S. shale because that was the big swing capacity of the last decade and a half. But also ex-U.S., OPEC plus, we've had damage to the supply, geopolitical damage. Russia's production is declining. Now, it's declining much more slowly than I think many observers expected. But basically, any lost barrel of oil of Russian production is probably gone for many, many years and will not be coming back. The other geopolitical angle, of course, has been the Saudi decision to make sure that they navigate the energy transition. So they take a very strategic view to maintaining oil price ranges over the basically for many, many years to come. And that has, in conjunction with a little bit of a playing the middleman in a fragmenting global world, has meant a much more hawkish take, so to speak, as the central banker of oil. So you mm -hmm. take it all together, the supply cycle is 
less elastic. And so it becomes much more demand-driven. Now, the war does not give us any relief on the supply side, but if at all, sharpens some of the geopolitical forces that are driving in inelasticity. And so therefore, you should actually see that as slightly pushing prices higher as we go forward. Again, largely linked to where demand sits, but you know, all else being equal, that would be the fact. I want to address the economic implications of that now. And actually, I want to come back to the discussion about the Saudis, the UAE. But thinking specifically about the inflationary impulse that might come from that, do you think at this point in the cycle, if it is strictly an oil price shock, given most central banks are sounding as though they really want to be done tightening policy, does this reintroduce the need to have to think about even tighter policy if it is strictly an energy price effect? I, again, I think it really depends on the magnitude here. If, if it mm. were to morph into a full oil price shock, that's neither the market nor my expectation, uh, then yes, you would actually have that spillover. Given where we are kind of in the rate and inflationary cycle, that even though it would be temporary, that oil price shock would probably be enough to dislodge the current market expectations in terms of where rates end and mm. what the equilibrium should be. Uh, but that's not where we are. But the risk of an oil price shock is, is higher. And we, yeah. we spoke about the Saudis briefly. In, in many ways, had it not come to the war and we would have gotten closer to Saudi-Israeli normalization, that would have implied a much more dovish Saudi oil policy vis-a-vis -vis what we get today. So at a, at a minimum, we're not getting kind of the, the dovish impulse uh, but we even we are at risk of getting negative fallout on that side. That's really where I wanted to go with this, because of course relations have been normalizing, I guess, or thawing, perhaps is the better word, when it comes to Israel and Saudi Arabia, Israel and the Emirates. Is this just a dead initiative at this point? I mean, there is tension, of course, between Saudi Arabia and Iran most notably in the proxy war in Yemen. Does this just really kill that hope that there was potential thawing of relations between those countries? One of the biggest uh, news in the first half of this year was the China-brokered Saudi-Iran detente or re-engagement. And the big news there was clear that the Saudis has, had bought themselves insurance vis-a-vis -vis Iran, basically had figured out a mechanism to freeze or pacify the dispute in Yemen and, and proxy wars and any direct bilateral issues. And the idea of there, partially, they wanted to immunize themselves from any type of US-Iran, Israeli-Iranian confrontation that, that could happen. Mm. And the move towards Saudi-Israeli normalization was in very much in line with that, which is in a f globally fragmenting world, you, can, you have basically two options as an emerging market, you can either commit yourself to one block and enjoy the geopolitical and economic benefits of block membership or alliance or relationship, or you're big enough to be an intermediary between the blocks and leverage the economic benefits that come from that. You know, like India has done uh, mm -hmm. very successfully in the in the past year and a half, and the Saudis are big enough and important enough to play a similar role. So the normalization with Israel made a lot of sense because then you basically, you de-risk Saudi on a variety of fronts while you maintain kind of, you preserve the, the high value core asset 
of the Saudi economy, which is oil, while de-risking the security front. That logic still holds, but wars have a dynamic, as you see in UK and Russia. Once they start, it's almost like physics. The, the gas and pressure that they unleash makes, you know, kind of very structured, deliberate policy choices quite difficult to achieve. So in my mind, I think the Saudis will be confronted with the humanitarian fallout in, from the Gaza war and public mm -hmm. opinion in the Arab world in such a degree that normalization is off the table. Let's finish the, the thread here then. Where does the U.S. sit on this? It is so far a, a fully committed ally but is also talking about Israel making sure its actions are very targeted and directed and, and not indiscriminate. The status of the uh, alliance between the two, I don't think really is in question, but I, I wanted to bring it back to the potential for future funding in a government that seems to go from dysfunction to dysfunction. Do you see any potential risks arising from that, I suppose? Yes, and that was the second point I I'd spoke about, I said, energy is one dimension of this war, but the other one is really what you mentioned about, which is global fragmentation perspective. Does this mm. war matter and how does it matter? And it matters exactly through the channel you just, through that little corridor you, you spoke about, which is, well, the Americans will have to be funding both for Israel and for Ukraine, they'll have to be supplying uh, weapons. That offers an entry point and a reconsideration for U.S. adversaries, particularly Russia, to rethink or to reimagine the way forward. Now, I'm not saying they're right, but they, the interpretation could easily be, A, ooh, this is a great entry point for divisiveness in U.S. politics, and which is the, de the degree of U.S. help for foreign allies. Or perhaps you can entry point to say, well, you cannot supply both. So pick pick one friend. Who's the one you care about more? Great. Mm -hmm. You wanna you wanna help out the Israelis? That's fantastic. That that means less less is going to Ukraine. Either way, that's there's a there's an opportunity for mischief here to step yeah. into the U.S. political domain. And then X the politics globally. What is the perception? of the West and the US as the leader that is heavily preoccupied by spending a lot of physical, military, and political capital on sustaining proxy wars or wars of its allies. We live in a stuff, a world where stuff is in short supply. We've seen it with energy. We saw it during the pandemic with a lot of goods. The inflationary impulse, a lot of it came from a shortage of stuff. And when we talk about stuff that's missing, ammunition, weapon systems, gear, a lot of this, you, you, you highlighted the peace dividend. It had been produced at levels for a different world than we live in today. Mm. I'll give you one example. A standard artillery shell, 155 millimeter, that's the most commonly used artillery shell, both in Ukraine and also, frankly, in Gaza when Israeli tanks move in. The US used to make about 10, 15,000 a month. They are now, the Pentagon is scaling that up, hoping to make 100,000 a month by early 2025. No matter what, uh, even at those levels, at the rate Ukraine in, is using them now with additional Israeli demand, that will not be enough to kind of meet all the targets 
helping all my friends and keeping my own stockpiles high. Now, Tim, what's that's a huge risk, not because of the material impact, but what the interpretation of that could be in other capitals mm-hmm. of the world. If they say, you know what? They're short on ammunition or they're short on the ability to help another friend with ammunition. It's, again, it invites more mischief and we, we've seen what that delivers. And so the odds of further conflict, either deeper in the existing ones, because the Russians think, oh, the Ukrainians are going to run out sooner than we expect, or they're going to have to ration or be smarter with how they use their ammunition, or newer conflicts in Asia and elsewhere, that risk has gone up. And that's a risk premium that should be widening. And the question is, where do you find that risk premium widening? Because it should be present somewhere. This is just a brief interruption to let you know that our European Research Conference is now less than a month away on Tuesday, November 7th, and we'd love to see you there. This year, we're doing something different in running the event across three different locations in London, Frankfurt, and Milan, with live speakers in each venue, as well as streamed content from our main stage speakers across all three locations. As usual, we'll be bringing you thought-provoking ideas looking at current trends in markets and leveraging our award-winning research on investor behavior, inflation, media sentiment, and quantitative finance. I'll be in Frankfurt myself for the day, and it'd be great to meet you there. Who knows? Maybe we'll even have a prize on hand for anyone who comes to the event thanks to hearing about it on Street Signals. For more information and to book your spot, please contact your State Street representative. Now, back to the podcast. How optimistic are you or pessimistic are you when it comes to sort of great power dynamics in which the U.S. is a major participant on one side allied with, with, with NATO, I suppose? How optimistic are you that they have the political will, the cohesion to see that through in a way that is advantageous to U.S. interests? My main work is dealing with the world in positive terms, i.e. the way it is, not in normative terms, the way it ought to be. So I almost struggle with this, <laughs> as well, what, how to think about what it should look like. I'd all, I'm going to evade your question a little bit and say the risks analytically to U.S. interests panning out successfully are, number one, first and foremost, internal cohesion. Uh, the biggest vulnerability is a fracturing of the U.S. democratic consensus, small d, uh, in terms of how the countries run and how it interacts with the rest of the world. Uh, the, the next U.S. election is another big test of that. And so I think that's probably the biggest risk. Beyond that, the other big risk is really perceptions and actions by other great powers in terms of how do they estimate their relative strengths and opportunities vis-a-vis the U.S.-led bloc. And we can see that 2022 was really the tragedy of 2022, more than anything, is that Putin and the Russian leadership completely misestimated their actual capabilities. Mm. Had they either been informed of their proper um, strength, the invasion and the war would not have happened. But it was, it was a misperception of not only their own strengths, but also of the Ukrainian counter response and the Western response that would come as a result. And so that mis- we are in a world where the risk of miscalculation between now and 2030 is certainly the highest 
in my lifetime. I think it's, I'm a child of the Cold War, but I think no, nothing compares to the potential for great power escalation. That said, I, I know we have to have something positive in this podcast, <laughs> is that I do think if, you, if we make it to the 2030s intact, a much better era awaits us because either the fragmentation, the world will have torn apart completely and the US bloc will have been repositioned or not. And if not, then I think a new equilibrium of forces can, can take hold. But we have no equilibrium right now. We have a rising power in China. We have a, Russia as a very destabilizing, spoiling force on the global scene with some smaller countries partaking. That's not a durable arrangement. And that's this instability will last for a few years with wars and awful fallout. But I'm still hopeful that by, we can make it to the 2030s without direct great power conflict. Uh, and, and thereafter, a new equilibrium could, could, could set in. I think the last time we talked about geopolitics on this podcast, we had Mark Rosenberg from our partner at GeoQuant on. That was in the wake of visits to China from Antony Blinken and Janet Yellen. As we're recording this, it's, it's not long after Chuck Schumer has met with Xi. There's talk of a summit between Xi and Biden in November. Is this a potential source of optimism in the coming years as, I mean, it's certainly the case that US-China relations can get worse, but do you put any basis for optimism in what does seem to be a little bit more openness and communication, at least, than we had the previous few years? Honestly, I don't, I, I don't see it as an important variable. Okay. And it may be surprising, and I know we've spoken a lot about war, but the reality is that I spend most of my time in terms of pricing geopolitics in global markets, not on war and conflict, but in where risk and return really has settled in as a result of geopolitics, and that's in other policy domains. So if you think of classic geopolitical risk, that's those kind of wars and conflict and fights over natural resources, that was like the 1973 oil price shock and similar episodes. That's kind of 20th century. The 21st century, most of it, and this relates to why these meetings matter a little bit, is that the bulk of the financial market effect of geopolitics plays out as a result of shifts in economic and industrial policy today. Because the battle is over economic primacy, even more so than military and physical dominance. Hmm. I know that may seem odd given the war in Ukraine and in Gaza and, and uh, other events, but when we're talking US-China, that is where the war is taking place. And in that, some of the competition is quite brutal in terms of elbowing, industrial espionage, but more so in terms of uh, policy frameworks that consistently basically subsidize production in key parts of the s supply chain, in key sectors that are critical to national security or economic welfare, or more importantly, in key areas of the value chain where most of future economic growth will sit. And therefore, having a dominant or leg up there really matters because as I, as I spoke earlier, relative economic power eventually 
translates into geopolitical power. So that, what 10, 15 years ago may have seemed like arcane stuff around uh, the, the type of industrial subsidies you enjoy in one economy over the other, is now, that's where the battle is. And so I spent actually a lot of time thinking about that. And that's what we saw, really, I think we've all been educated. You've had the tr- trade wars of 2018, mm-hmm. 2019, you had the pandemic, you had the war, there's now an awareness, and you've now had the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act. It's That is geopolitics. That is not domestic politics. That is geopolitics 101. And where does Europe now stand in this? Because of course, it's they're now starting to realize, particularly when it comes to things like electric vehicle production, just how far behind they are. Are they too far behind at this point? Specifically in electric vehicles, they, they're behind, but there are pathways to catch up. They're difficult. The Where they're really behind is in broader geopolitical power projection, the ability mm-hmm. to, to really forge their and determine their own future. Their fate is too heavily dependent on on the US in the security domain. It's still too heavily dependent on China and emerging markets in the economic domain. And so they have some agency in certain areas. They still have a lot of wealth. And so therefore, the ability to, to invest and to, to finance whatever economic transition they need to undergo, but it's 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 an uphill struggle. Uh, they have headwinds and not not tailwinds. I do think on electric vehicles, eventually the Europeans will will succeed. But when I say eventually, that's the time frame is hard to determine, and the cost is hard to determine. Last question on Europe, then, as far as energy security is concerned, and specifically with respect to the the Ukraine war. You know, we are not in a place where this appears to be ending anytime soon, and the counteroffensive that I think was hoped to produce a bit more ground gained for Ukraine has not quite been there. But I'm thinking specifically about how Europe approaches this, being, of course, next door to it, but also being vulnerable on the energy front as we head into another winter. Do you see them as better positioned now, or is it still an environment where significant transition away from previously relied upon energy supplies is still very much in its early stages? Clearly, Europe's better off than it was a year ago. Uh, Even a cold winter today would not have the same type of effect than it would have had last year. They're not out of the woods either yet. Uh, But by and large, I would imagine that by 2025, so really just a, a little bit more than a year away, they will have rebalanced their energy sources to the degree that makes it very sustainable. But, you know, on the Ukraine war, as bloody as it is, in terms of, when we talk about equilibrium, that war is starting to look a lot like a war that's settling in, where the front lines are hardening. And while that's very bad news for the Ukrainians hoping to retake some of their territory, it's not the worst news in terms of the other stability implications that flow from the war. Uh, because the more the conflict gets localized around a defined front line, as unappetizing as m- many will see it, and understandably so, it does allow for a framework to stabilize and perhaps even de-escalate uh, the situation over the coming years. Elliot, I have to say, my mind is blown. We have covered so much ground that we'll have to do it again very, very soon. And I just very much appreciate the time you've given us already. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you. I hope, for, so a, hope for a sequel. Absolutely. We will, we will certainly do that in the new year. Thanks, everybody, for listening. 
Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.